Well, it's a great honor to be here today in beautiful Twin Falls, Idaho. You will pick up a Canadian accent. I've been in the United States since I was 18 years old, but I still, still maintain it, and students still identify me as Canadian, even though I've long given up that designation, but that's just the way it is, right? Can't escape your accent. Uh, I haven't been in uh, southern Idaho before. Uh, the only time as I have traveled from the East Coast to uh, my wife and I, we lived in Vancouver, British Columbia for three years. I taught there in the 90s. So that was the only time I was on the western portion of Canada. So we went through Coeur d'Alene, right? So Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And then we drove down to Spokane and I said, Coeur d'Alene's a lot better looking than Spokane. But uh, so northern Idaho... Uh, but it's great to be here in, uh, in your neck of the woods, right? Thank you to Mike and to Aaron for having me here. And uh, thank you to those ladies who went through Christ from beginning to end. I hope it was a benefit to you. You, you write these books and you think, does anybody ever read them? <laughs> uh, it gives job security. But uh, you just say, I want them to be for the benefit of the church, and so hopefully it is, and now I've been given the task of doing the impossible. <laughs> uh, Christ from beginning to end, well, I mean, this is vast, isn't it? So we'll try to narrow it down, give you a few things to think about, and obviously our churches as we gather and our teaching, we're always expounding scripture and seeing how the whole Bible ultimately leads us to Christ. But let's just pray for a moment, and then we'll begin. Father, be with our time this morning. Help us to see the glory of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for even reading of Luke 24, where Jesus reminds us that the law of Moses and the prophets leads us to him. For Revelation 5, that sees all of your great and glorious plans centered in the Lamb, the Lion. Help us to get a sense of that, even though this would take hours and weeks to think through the glory of Christ in all of Scripture. Help us to get an inkling of that, a sense of that, so we may worship Him aright, that we may obey Him in our lives, and that our churches here, these, both these churches, would desire to know Him and proclaim Him as Lord and Savior. Be with us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, why, why the subject, right? Christ from beginning to end. That's where we want to begin Scripture, obviously, is a, is a big book. Uh, in our English Bibles, it's 66 books. Uh, it has many, many subjects. Many, everything that's in it is important. But we can say there's nothing more important than, and there's nothing more central to the entire Bible than the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He is at the center of it. Even the passages that we've looked at already today uh, remind us of that, Right? When we think of who Jesus is in the Bible, one of those titles of the books I wrote tried to capture that, right? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the eternal Son of God, right? God the Son, right? That already picks up uh, the Trinitarian understanding, right? The one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's God the Son who became flesh, right? Think of John 1, 14, the Word became flesh. The Word is from eternity who then assumed our human nature in order to redeem us, right? That's who he is, and obviously he's central to the entire plan of God from beginning to end, and we can look at passage after passage that speaks of that, but ultimately that's what Scripture says about him. Think of even of Jesus' own prayer in John 17. He prays, right, that we may know the one true God and obviously have eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is central to Scripture. But he doesn't come to us in a vacuum. <laughs> you don't just find Jesus when you open Matthew. Of course, you do find Jesus there. But you need a whole Bible to understand who he is. He's presented, ultimately, in light of the Old Testament. This is why, this is one of our weaknesses, I think, in our churches, right, is that we don't really know the Old Testament very well. We don't think of how Matthew makes no sense except you have Genesis through, in our English Bible's Malachi, right? The Old Testament. He doesn't come to us brand new, right? It's built 
off of the entire plan of God that goes back to eternity. He's from eternity, right? So we have to then see how he doesn't just show up in the New Testament. He's in an entire Bible, right? And that's why we have Christ from beginning, from Genesis, ultimately to Revelation. Right? Luke 24, the passage that Mike read reminds us of this. Beginning with the law of Moses, the prophets, later in that chapter, he speaks of the Psalms, right? So that was a threefold division of the Old Testament. All of that, he says, speaks of me. And in fact, he says to those two downcast disciples, he says, you ought to have known that the Messiah had to suffer. And of course, they had really no concept of that. That's why they were stumbling. A crucified Messiah. Yet that's exactly what the Old Testament anticipated. And Jesus then went back and opened up their eyes to see that he truly is there in the Old Testament, that he now has come in history, the Son of God, and that all of the Scripture is centered in him. Even think of how Jesus is described in the New Testament. He's described in Old Testament terms, isn't he? The greatest description is, is he is the last Adam. Well, where does that come from? <laughs> well, you got to go back to Genesis, don't you? He is presented as the great seed of Abraham. Well, that assumes something about Abraham and the importance of Abraham. He is the one who is the true Israel, right? He says he is the son of God. Even the language of son of God is built off of the Old Testament. It goes from eternity, but it's already there in the Old Testament. And this is why it's very, very important to see how Jesus is in a whole Bible, right? He is presented from beginning to end. Thinking through this as well also helps us apply the Old Testament to us rightly. We must not be like there was an early church, what we call heretic. His name was Marcion. And he had the tendency, not just the tendency, he cut off the Old Testament, said we didn't need it. Right? That doesn't fit with what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. Right? That's a very famous passage that we know regarding Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it is right for our instructions, fruitful. It's lead us into instruction and righteousness and correction and all of that. But notice when Paul says that, he's not thinking of the New Testament. The New Testament's being written. <laughs> he's thinking of the Old Testament. Have you ever thought of that, right? All Scripture, all of the Old Testament is for your instruction, and it's to lead you to salvation in Christ, and it's for doctrine, reproof, correction. We often don't think of that. We often sort of say, well, when I'm reading Leviticus, we'll just put that aside, right? Or when I'm reading the book of Numbers, well, let's just run through that really fast. And then we'll get to the good stuff. We'll go to John's gospel or so on, right? So understanding how Christ is from beginning to end also helps us understand how a whole Bible fits, right? How a whole Old Testament fits. How we can fulfill the mandate that Paul has is that we are to learn from the whole Bible for our churches, our lives, and our godliness and ultimately salvation in Christ, right? Too often we read the Old Testament in kind of quick way or we sort of spiritualize it, right? We sort of draw lessons out of it, we pull it out of context, but we're not really understanding the way God intended for it to be applied to us. So how do we avoid this? Well, we avoid this by seeing how the whole story fits together. And that whole story fits together in not just a random way, but it all fits together centered in Christ, right? So Christ from beginning to end is important to understand the Scriptures. More importantly, it's important to understand Him, right? And the calling that we have to know Him and proclaim Him. Well, as I said, this is a vast subject. So, so how do we, in just a few minutes type of thing, think through how we think about this? So this here, we'll look at some passages. This won't be an exposition of specific texts, right? So normally we would try to expound specific text, but this is more of a topical, yet we'll certainly hit passages and we'll see how the clock goes and we'll see if we can come back to a passage just to illustrate some of these things uh, in the end, right? So four steps. Now you're used to, you're probably used to three-point sermons. Well, this is a four steps that we're going to take. How do we proceed? How do we see how Christ is in a whole Bible? How is he from beginning to end? Well, we first need to just talk very briefly about how we should even properly approach Scripture, right? how we should properly interpret it. You say, well, that's basic, isn't it? Well, it's not as basic as you think. Right? So just a couple things there. 
And then how we see Christ in a whole Bible, right, from beginning to end. Where do we start? (laughs) This is almost going to sound like sort of a trivial point, but it's a very important point. You start at the beginning. (laughs) How do you see how Christ is from beginning to end? Well, you go back to the beginning, right? And then the third point is after we look at the beginning, and really that's really looking at creation, right? The doctrine of creation, who God is, who humans are, just briefly, we then have to get the problem right, right? So that's really Genesis 3. So we're going to work through just very briefly those opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis 3, the problem of sin. If you get that wrong, in light of Genesis 1 and 2, everything goes astray. And then in Genesis 3, not only is there a problem, but there's a promise. <laughs> and that promise right, really unites your whole Bible. And that promise is centered in Jesus Christ. Right? So we're going to look at approaching the Bible. We're going to look at starting at the beginning, getting the problem right and the promise. And then lastly, fourth, we're going to look at how that promise works itself out through the covenants. Now, we can't cover everything there, but just sort of the big picture of how even the Old Testament, how Jesus can say in Luke 24, all the scriptures, all the Old Testament is that which was leading to me, right? It's that which is, right, teaching you about who I am. And then, of course, he does, comes in history and he lives and dies and is raised and they say, ah, this is how the plan of God works and this is how the plan of God is centered in Christ, right? So let's look at those four areas, and each of these will be fast. I promise you we could develop these at great length, but this is sort of priming the pump, right? And uh, that will encourage you maybe to pick up Christ from beginning to end if you haven't read it, and then you can there you see things in there, right? So uh, all my kids are through college, so I don't need it for that, but uh, hopefully for your edification and so on, right? Well, let's first look at approaching Scripture, right? Uh, we first have to talk about how we rightly read Scripture, And what I'm going to try to encourage you with, and you probably already know this, right? You're well taught here in both churches, wonderful pastors, and so on. But I want to just reinforce, I think, what they're doing uh, with every week in terms of as they teach and preach God's Word, is we don't just read Scripture sort of randomly. (laughs) We don't just read Scripture by sort of opening it up, put your finger down, and say, oh, there's a text for me today. Scripture, right? We must read Scripture according to what it actually is. And what it is, right, is this is God's Word that is given to us through human authors. And what's significant is, I mean, all that's significant, but it comes to us over time. Now, that over time is what I want to focus on, but I want to also say something about being God's Word, right? It's God's Word, right? So God has given us his word, so that assumes something about God, right? God knows what he's talking about. God knows all things. God plans all things. So when we read all of the parts, right? Sometimes we say, well, how do those parts fit together? But we know because this is God's word, they do fit together, right? So as we study God's word, we need to work hard on seeing how the parts fit with the whole. The rhyme and reason, why Leviticus is there and how it fits ultimately with Christ and how it fits in terms of the whole Bible and what numbers is about, right? This is that which gives us encouragement that there's a unity to the Bible. There's a coherence to the Bible. It's very diverse in terms of different authors and books over time, yet there's one plan, right? We need to remind ourselves of that, right? What's the main point? What is it getting at, What's the message? And ultimately, there's a gospel message that comes through the entire scripture. And if you miss that, you may pick up elements of truths elsewhere, but you're missing the main point, right? So it's God's word through authors, right? So we have to read their books. Their books are given to us by inspiration, but all of those books contribute to the overall plan. All of those books are necessary, right? So you can't just say, let's skip Numbers in my devotions, it doesn't matter, <laughs> right? It's part of the whole, and so we have to work hard on reading a whole Bible, right? That's why we often, it's already the beginning of a new year, but we try to encourage where I am at church, and I try to do it, is to read the Bible through once a year, right? Starting in January, Bible study type of thing, and you read it over and over again, and we get some sense of the whole instead of just simply picking and choosing random parts, right? But also, it comes to us 
over time. Now, that over time picks up the notion of what we call a progress of revelation. Now, progress, right? Don't think of it anything like it's used in our day, right? It's not progressive insurance. It's not progressive politics, right? Progress simply means an unfolding revelation, step by step. God has chosen. He didn't have to do it this way. But God has chosen to make himself known over a long period of time. There's a lot of delay in the Bible, right? We want instant uh, answers. But, you know, the Old Testament people of God had to wait thousands of years. Isaiah writes 700 years before Christ. That's a long period of time. 400 years take place between the Old Testament's closing and the New Testament, right? So God has chosen to step-by-step make his plan known. He has an eternal plan, but that plan doesn't come to us all at once. It comes to us step-by-step. And so that means then as we read Scripture, we have to always, as we read any portion of Scripture, we have to not only read it in its context. I like to talk about three contexts. The great danger of misreading the Bible is you take it out of context, right? We hear that all the time, and that's very true, right? We need to read in terms of sort of three contexts. You read a book as a book, right? You can start anywhere in the Bible, but you read Isaiah as Isaiah, and you read Exodus as Exodus, and you read John as John, and then we do exposition of those books. But we also have to say, where's this book in God's unfolding plan, right? Because it builds on one another, right? It's sort of like a mystery novel. You think of a mystery novel? And when you read a good mystery novel, you don't start in chapter 8. <laughs> You'd lose, you say, what's going on here? Right? You can read the end of the story <laughs> if you want to cheat uh, and do that, but even then it doesn't make sense, right? The author of mystery novels wants you to read it step by step, right? And the plot thickens. Uh, the characters develop, right? Uh, the promises unfold. Well, the Bible's sort of similar to that. God has given us his plan, and so we read a book, but we set it in terms of its context, where it is, what's preceded it. That's the context number two, and, and seeking to say, well, how is this author, Isaiah, building on what's previous? He doesn't write in a vacuum. He writes on the basis of God's promises and what's been said before, right? Think of the New Testament. The New Testament opens in Matthew 1 by saying, who's Jesus? He is the son of Abraham, the son of David. Well, to understand that, if the first time you read the book, you'd say, what's that? Right? Well, Matthew says, read the Old Testament. Right? Read the Old Testament, and you'll get a sense of what that is. Right? And part of this unfolding, what's very, very important here, and we'll mention it here, and we can't develop it fully, but the covenants become important here. The glorious truth of our God, and this is just a glorious truth, right? The creator and Lord is a covenant God. Right? He's a God who enters into relationship with us. That's an amazing thing. Right? And he makes promises, and he keeps his promise. Right? We aren't very good at keeping our promises. Right? But God makes and keeps promises. And the covenants run through the entire Bible, don't they? They're not sort of what I like to say, window dressing. Uh, the whole plan of God, in some sense, we like to say, my colleague and I like to say, it's the backbone of the entire plan, right? Uh, it is what makes the plan hang together, right? If you've got your spine, everything goes back to that spine. My father was a chiropractor, right? We used to have spines hanging all over the house. And he used to say, Son, and he said to my brothers, four brothers, he said, everything goes back to that spine, right? If you've got a pain over here, it goes back to that spine, you've got to get back to the backbone, right? And the backbone of the Bible are ultimately the unfolding covenants, beginning with Adam, working through Noah, going through Abraham, going through the nation of Israel, tied to David, the promise of a new covenant, and so on, right? That's how the Bible unfolds, and as we read books, we then have to say, how is this covenants unfolding? How are the promises of God? This isn't just haphazard. They're not random. You don't just pick texts out of place, right? You place them in terms of God's unfolding plan. And we read then everything ultimately then in terms of the whole Bible. You know, you and I like to say to my students at the seminary and others, I like to say we, you and I live in the second best place in all of human history. 
Why is it the second best place? Because we live after the coming of Christ. Why is that so great? Because all of God's plan now has come to completion in him. All of the Old Testament is now brought to pass in him. Right? That's greater than Isaiah ever lived and Moses ever lived. All, they just look forward. We, though, live in light of his coming. That's why the New Testament, we talk about it as a closed canon. That's important as you talk to uh, Mormon neighbors, right? They want to add something further to the Bible. No, 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 no. The Bible has closed in Christ. He is the one that's brought it to pass, right? But this is the second best place because the best place will be when he comes again. <laughs> when he makes a new heavens and a new earth and everything is brought to its end. But you and I live with a greater privilege than anybody from the Old Testament era because Christ has come. And so we read the Bible in terms of the entire Bible, right? So as we approach Scripture, you approach it in terms of books, but never, I want to encourage you, don't just pull texts out randomly, right? They're not given to us randomly. They're meant to be read as whole books, but they're read to be, meant to be read in terms of how they're building on previous revelation, and then how they come to pass in Christ. So Christ from beginning to end, right? Now that we look at the whole, we then say, ah, oh, this is where the plan goes. This is how it applies to me. This is how I ought to live now in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus, right? That's how God's promises reach fulfillment and so on, right? So that's just a point about reading the Bible. I encourage you as you study the Bible, right? Books, but always be asking, how is this building? How is this fitting in terms of a whole Bible? It's really only when you put it together as a whole Bible that you can say, now this is how it applies to me. That saves you from just pulling text out of context. Right? Now second, right? To get Christ from beginning to end, we start at the beginning. And I said that almost sounds like <laughs> truism type of thing. right? Why start at creation? Well, that's where the Bible starts. I don't know if you've ever heard of the man... Very well-known Christian minister, missionary, evangelist, apologist of the faith. His name is Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer died in 1984, so many people don't know who he is, but he's a wonderful Christian leader. And I remember hearing sort of a quip that he gave that fits nicely here. He says the most glorious thing of the Bible, and he was comparing it to other religious literature, right? He says, the glorious thing about the Bible is that it begins at the beginning and it goes to the end. <laughs> it begins at the beginning and it goes to the end. And something is very important there. In fact, the truthfulness of the Bible hangs on that, doesn't it? It's a unified story. It's not just random stories thrown together. It begins at creation, moves to new creation. Of all these diverse authors, there's... A coherent plan, right? And we begin at creation. That's where the Bible begins. Creation, it's so important to begin here because the Bible begins there, but it also establishes the most foundational relationship that there is in all the world, right? And what I'm going to say will sound obvious to Christians, but it's not obvious to non-Christians, right? The most foundational relationship in the entire world is God is God and you are not. We call that the creator-creature distinction. Now, that has to be hammered home in our context, your context here, right? A specific kind of God who alone is God, the triune God and everything else that is creation. And creation establishes this. The Bible also in creation starts with Adam. Adam, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Very important there. All the biblical covenants ultimately start in creation with Adam and so on. So all of this is reasons to begin in creation, right? That's where the Bible begins in some sense, unless you get some of those opening chapters correct. The whole Bible can go off, right? Your whole understanding of it can go off, right? I want to think just if you have your Bibles of Genesis 1, so we can't look at all these texts in detail, but there's a couple of points I want to pick up from creation that are absolutely essential to understand the Bible story and how it leads us to Christ, right? The first truth, and I've already alluded to this, is, and really this is building off the creator-creature distinction, right? We have to know who God is. We have to know who God is, right? I think we take for granted that opening verse. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? We, we're so used to this. 
But this is profound, right? This is our entire view of the world. It comes right here, right? This in the beginning <laughs> assumes there was something before the beginning, right? This universe came to exist at a point in time, right? So what we identify as the universe, space-time universe, now came to exist. God spoke it out of nothing. But before there was ever a world, there is God alone, right? Not many gods, <laughs> uh, one true and living God, right? The God who needs nothing, even in our songs that we were singing, you're singing about God's glory and the one who needs nothing, right? That's very, very important. And this God is presented in these opening verses, the entire chapter, as the God who is self-sufficient, who needs nothing, but he creates in power. He creates in might. He creates in wisdom. He creates, ultimately, for, for us to be in relationship to him. He's the covenant God, right? But at the heart of this God, right, we have to understand, and this is where our world... We, we have to, if we're going to communicate the gospel to people and get the Bible right, we have to get who God is right. That's the most foundational thing, right? And at the heart of who God is, right, there's a lot of things to be said. His love, he's a personal God, uh, all of those areas, right? But he is a God who doesn't need anything. <laughs> That's a very, very important point. He is self-sufficient, independent. Why is that important, right? Well, this is important for a whole host of reasons, right? But one of them, I want to just unpack a little bit here in terms of God and the relationship of him to his goodness and his character and his nature and so on, right? When we say that God needs some nothing, right? All things are from him and not, we, we contribute nothing to him. He exists on his own, right? He's the eternal God. He's not some finite God that's created, right? He is the eternal God that's always, always, always existed as the one true God, right? All knowledge comes from him. He doesn't say to you, he, oh, he does say rhetorically, who's been my counselor? And he, and he doesn't expect you to say, well, I've taught you something, God, right? He knows all things, right? But think of it in terms of, and this is issues of our own day, we struggle with morality and ethics and so on, right? We struggle for, are there standards? Are there rights and wrongs? Well, the Bible makes it very clear, God is the standard. God is holy, right? God is love. God is holy. God is good. Goodness is not defined by something outside of him. He is good. He makes commands, but his commands aren't arbitrary. His commands are tied to his very being. What makes something right and good? Does it conform to God? Right? That, that's the answer. Now, you say, why is that so basic to understand? Well, just in a moment, we'll see the problem, the human problem. And the human problem is, is that you and I, foolishly, stupidly, right, rebelliously, in Adam, rebel against this God. Right? Not a God of our imagination, but this God, creator and Lord, who is good, who is holy, right? And sin before God becomes, in Scripture, a major, major problem. It's not a problem to our world, right? Most people think that God's the kind of God that he just sort of grades on the curve, right? Uh, he just simply says, well, we'll weigh your good and bad deeds, right? Every religion outside of Christianity is a works righteous religion. Why is Christianity not? Because the kind of God that is there, the true and living God, does it great on the curve, and you can't do anything in your sin to merit the favor of God. He must save, and he alone. Right? And when he saves, he must satisfy his own demand. <laughs> he will make demands upon us, but he must meet his own demand. We cannot, right? We are finite creatures. We've rebelled against the God of glory and the God of goodness and the God of holiness and the God of justice and so on. Now, I'm already setting you up for the whole storyline of the Bible, right? What's needed? We'll see just in a moment. We need a human. We need a better Adam, right? We began with the first song. He's the great and better Adam. We need a better Adam. We need more than just a human. We need ultimately God to save us. 
right? And that's going to lead us to Christ and his glory and his deity and his humanity. I mean, all these things become very important. A redeemer who dies for us and who pays for our sin. That's what the sacrificial system is all about. That's what Israel had to learn in their offering on the day of atonement and on and on. What are all, what's Leviticus all about? It's awfully repetitive, right? It's awfully bloody, right? What's going on here? Well, it's ultimately tied to your view of God. God of glory, the God of goodness, the God of justice, and sin before God, right? Well, sort of already running ahead, but that, that's, that's well, your doctrine of God is foundational, right? So around you, in terms of your neighbors, right, you've got to eventually go back to God. That's the foundation. That's where the Bible begins, right? You've got to get that right. Also, we see in creation as well, humans, right? So we show up on the sixth day. There's lots to say about us. Verse 26 uh, as you work through the narrative of uh, Genesis 1, we are the pinnacle of creation. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Right? Uh, Psalm 8, David in Psalm 8 says, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he says, I marvel, I marvel that you in all of your glory and all of your goodness and all of your self-sufficiency, right? You made people like us in your image, right? We are the highest of all creation, even higher than angels, we are the image of God. Of course, that's taught in Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so on. Verse 27, so God created man. That's collective, right? Human. In his own image, in the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. I mean, that, no, he spent a lot of time. That's a profound statement. We take that for granted. Our society's a little confused on that, right? But here you have creation. Image of God, male and female, to rule over, be fruitful and multiply and so on, right? And ultimately, this gets tied to Adam. In creation, we won't develop this at length, but Adam isn't just a one-off, right? He's not just the first biological man, which he is. But Adam has a very important role in Scripture, right? Whether you like it or not. I'd like to have a talk with Adam, and we will have a talk with Adam and say, what did you do, Adam, uh, in terms of taking of that fruit and so on? But Adam is chosen by God to function as a covenant head. Right? He doesn't just act on his own. He acts for all of us, right? That makes sense of later scripture, right? The apostle Paul will say in Romans 3.23 later on here, he'll say, all, all. That's just not some. That's all. And in that context, it's Jew-Gentile. That's another way of saying the entire humanity. All people have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God, right? Well, how does Paul know that? Well, you say, well, he's given it to by inspiration. That's true. But, you know, Paul hasn't done an inductive analysis of every single person, every single culture, every single place. Maybe somebody escaped that. No. They didn't escape it because all of it's taken back to this first man. This first man who is, again, not just standing on his own, but standing for us. Who then, sadly, right, he's given a command in Genesis 2, don't take of the tree. He breaks that command. It's a law. It's a command. And ultimately, the Bible says, sin and death come into this world. Sin and death is abnormal. Sin is a rebellion against God. Death now comes to the human race, right? And it's because of that man. Now, that's very important. His role in creation, indeed our role in creation, to rule over, to be image, to put things under our feet, all of that has been lost because of his sin. Of course, that leads to the secondary. We're just unpacking. That's sort of creation, and we're already anticipating this reality of getting the problem right, right? Adam was made, and all of us were made to rule over the creation. We were made to know God. We were made to, we could say, take the borders of Eden, right? Eden where God would dwell and expand it to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's not accidental, right? That uh, in light of Christ's work at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the whole new heavens and new earth is pictured as a great new Jerusalem, and it has... The presence of God, it's designed, it's described as a perfect cube. The only perfect cube you have in the Bible is the Holy of Holies. The imagery here is, ultimately, the Eden has been expanded. The Holy of Holies has been expanded to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, in some sense, our task initially was to take Eden and expand it. We didn't do that. Adam is booted out of the garden. Sin and death come into the world. 
All of our relationships are distorted, right? So we're at odds with one another. The creation is cursed. I mean, all of that. But most significantly, we uh, stand under the condemnation of God, right? Sin, first and foremost, is vertical, right? Now, it will show itself horizontal as well. But sin, and of course, that tries to the Bible. God has made us for himself. We've sinned against him. Adam violated God's command. So sin stands before God. We stand under judgment. But notice what I said, and I've sort of set you up for this. What kind of God do we stand under the judgment of? The God who's holy. <laughs> the God who will not share his glory with anyone. The God who is the very standard of righteousness. Do you think that God then is going to say, well, we'll just let bygones be bygones. We'll just let things go. We'll just, I'll just deny myself. No, that's not the God of the Bible, right? And so that creates a real problem. How on earth are we going to stand before God? I think Aaron even mentioned, I think in his prayer or so, when he said, I mean, the whole message of the Bible in some sense, and it's really true, is how do we stand right before a holy God? Now, if I dare say, if you took a poll of Twin Falls today, and you took a poll and said, what's the most pressing issue we face as human beings? You'd get a variety of answers, but I hardly doubt it, unless it's from this wonderful audience, right? That people would say the greatest issue facing us is not Russia, it's not Ukraine, it's not the border, or whatever you want to say, a police brutality, whatever, whatever. It is that we stand condemned before God. How are we right before a holy God? But that's the issue here. So what do we have in terms of the promise? Well, Genesis 3.15 is a very, very important promise. Built into the problem is also hope. <laughs> the God of covenant makes promises. And it's very little what he says here, but this is what develops through the entire Bible, right? We know here that in giving curses upon the serpent, which would be identified with Satan, Curses upon the woman, curses upon Adam, and that affects the entire creation. We read this in Genesis 3.15. I, and that's God, I will put enmity between, right? Don't take that I for granted, right? What's God saying here? He's saying, it's not you who's going to do something. It's me who's going to do something, right? You have made a royal mess of it. <laughs> I am going to step in. I will sovereignly act. I will provide, right? Now, I'm picking up language that runs through the entire Bible, right? God provides for Isaac a substitute. God provides for Israel a Passover lamb. God provides uh, priests in order to offer sacrifice. But ultimately, God provides his son. But God now says, I will do something. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, the seed of the woman. Right? He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. You will strike his heel. So this is a very initial promise, but we have the sense of God's going to do something. God's going to provide. And he's going to provide by the provision of another Adam. Now, where do you get another Adam from? Well, that's in the context of Adam here, right? The seed of the woman, there's going to come an offspring that somehow this offspring, and in the context here, and certainly we see this in the whole Bible, the one who's going to come will ultimately reverse what Adam did. The one who's going to come, this seed of the woman who will crush Satan, will ultimately bring sin and death to an end. Will bring the reversal of the curse on the world, right? Will bring salvation. I mean, here's already this initial, what we call early gospel promise, right? It's little, but we have enough. God's going to do something through a human. Now, why would it have to be a through a human? Well, that goes back to Adam, doesn't it? We are image bearers. We are the highest of creation. God is working out his purposes through humans, right? He's restoring us to the very purpose of our creation, and it must come from one who, unlike Adam, obeys. Who, unlike Adam, truly, and of course in Adam's sin, he didn't fulfill the great commandment, did he, right? What's the great commandment? It's to love God. Well, he didn't really love God. He loved himself. 
It'll come through one who will love God, who will obey God, who in doing that will reverse the effects of sin and death. Now, this leads to the last area, and we'll conclude with this. You say, well, how is this? We're, we're only in Genesis 3. How do you get Christ from beginning to end? Well, how does the Bible unfold through here? And it's very important to see. You've got all kinds of books in the Old Testament, but what it's unpacking for you is how this promise receives further expansion, development, clarity, right? In some sense, as you work through the whole Bible, you then are, you should be asking yourself, who is this seed of the woman? <laughs> uh, who is it that God is going to provide? Who is it that's going to come and, and reverse all the effects of Christ? And, and more importantly, who is going to come who will allow us to stand justified before God? Now, as you work through, and this is how the promise unfolds, it unfolds step by step, and it unfolds ultimately through the covenants. Right? You walk through the covenants, and the promise now just expands. By the time you get to the Old Testament, you have a pretty good idea of who this seed of the woman will be. Right? That's why Jesus could say, oh, you foolish, slow of heart, weren't you expecting the Messiah? Weren't you expecting one who would die and to offer himself for us? Right? So as the plan unfolds, right, it gets unpacked step by step, and particularly it gets unpacked through the covenants, right? So as you walk through the covenants, right, who's the seed of the woman going to be? Well, it's pretty drastic with Noah. The whole world is wiped out except Noah and his family. So who's the seed of the woman going to be? It's going to come through Noah, right? There's no one left, And then as God makes that covenant with Noah, he says, I'm not going to keep wiping out the human race again. I'm going to have... The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God, they're going to exist simultaneously, but out of the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of man that stands in opposition to God, I'm going to choose one man, and that's Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant, what's at the heart of the Abrahamic covenant? The heart of the Abrahamic covenant is, I'm going to provide you a seed. Now, there's a lot of drama in getting that seed. Isaac, and then eventually you get Jacob and so on, but out of the Abrahamic line comes one who will, in Genesis 12, bring blessing to the nations, right? What is this? This is the seed. It comes through him. That comes through the nation of Israel. What's Israel all about, right? Well, Israel is all about bringing forth the seed. They are the ones who are the, come from Abraham, right? They are the ones through Jacob, Jacob the head of Israel, and so on. And then, of course, as you work through the Old Testament, it uniquely comes through David. Well, what's David? It's the Davidic covenant. David isn't just some minor figure in Scripture. I mean, by the time you get to David, and then eventually you read all of the book of Psalms and the prophets, everything gets centered in David, right? David is God's chosen king. David is ultimately identified in 2 Samuel 7. David is actually the kings. The kings, the Davidic kings are called sons of God. But that's language that goes back to Israel. And it's language that goes ultimately back to Adam. Remember in Luke chapter 3, you read the genealogy of Jesus. What's Adam called? He's called the son of God. That's not accidental language. So that Adam shows itself in Israel, shows itself in David, ultimately David's greater son. And as you work through the covenants, on the one hand, we need a human, the seed of the woman. We need one who will represent us, one who will identify with us. The whole priestly theme, right? What were priests? Priests were picked out of the people of Israel. Why? Because they had to identify with them. Well, we need one who will identify with us, who can represent us, who can obey for us. We don't obey. We need a perfect covenant keeper, right? Think of Christ and his work as all an act of obedience. I've come to do your will. I've come to obey. I've come to obey even to death on a cross. All these themes are not accidental. They come through the entire Bible. But on the other hand, as we work through the Old Testament, you need more than a man. <laughs> you need a human but you ultimately need God. Why do you need God? Because of who God is, right? Because of the problem, right? God must remedy his own demand. God must take his own demand, his perfect demand, upon himself. What's going on in the cross? It's God himself in the Son of God who's paying for your sin. Now, he can do so because he's human. He, he can't die unless he's human. God doesn't die, right? But the Son of God assumes our humanity. Why? 
in order to redeem us, in order to satisfy his own demand, in order to obey for us, right? So that in Christ now, we have a perfect righteousness and standing. We have the full payment of our sin. We sang in our hymn, full atonement can it be? That's a, <laughs> that should amaze us because before God, how can there be such a thing as full atonement? Who could ever, ever as a human pay for that? But God can. God can because the Son of God has taken on our humanity and died for us, right? This is why the new covenant promise, right? Christ brings a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 34. We'll finish with this. If you turn over to Jeremiah 31, there's, there's many passages in the prophets who anticipate, right? So the prophets are all written after David, right? They're looking to the future, right? And in Jeremiah 31, we have this promise of a new covenant. But verse 34, the second part of verse 34 is really at the heart of this new covenant. And this makes sense if you understand creation and understand the fall and understand the promises, right? This new covenant, the new covenant has a lot of features to it, but at its heart, you have that word for. And this is verse 34, halfway down. We say 34b or something. Um, so verse 34, Jeremiah 31, no longer will a man teach his neighbor, but then go down and it says for. What's at the heart of the new covenant? For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. God doesn't have amnesia. <laughs> God is the all-knowing God. What does it mean he remembers their sins no more? Does he simply say, we're just going to patch this up? Right? No. Right? We know that what this exactly means, and the author of Hebrews picks this up. To remember their sins no more means something has to happen where sin is fully dealt with. Now, think of this in the contrast of the Old Covenant, right? This is set within, you know, you read this scripture in terms of what's preceding it. Remember in the Old Covenant? And this is part of the lesson that the nation of Israel is to learn. Their sins were remembered day by day, year after year, the day of atonement. You'd think it would dawn, and it, was, and it should have dawned on the Israelite. Is there ever going to be an end to this? And, of course, the prophets are saying, and God is saying in the promise of the New Covenant, yep, there is going to come an end. But it's going to come to an end in my provision. My provision of a king. My provision of David's greater son, a greater Adam, the seed of Abraham, but also one who is my not just human son, in the sense that he's the king. Don't think of it biologically in that sense. But he is the divine son. And even in the Old Testament, you see elements of that. Remember at Christmas time, we love Isaiah 9, right? Isaiah 9, right? Um, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son. Son means king there. It doesn't mean male. It means king. A child is born. A king is given. And he will, in verse 7, sit on David's throne. There's the human. But what is he called? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of Peace, all of those are titles of God. This is why David can say in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, and then he says about his Lord, he's going to sit at the right hand of God. Now, in biblical thought, right? And again, this is why you have to have a proper doctrine of God. To sit at the right hand of God is only possible for God. So in the Old Testament, we already have the sense that this coming king is identified as God. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus can say, before Abraham was, I am. And he basically takes the name of God on himself, right? That's why Old New Testament passages can say, he's the Lord, Jesus Christ. That's Old Testament language of, of the name of God. He is God, right? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's relation of Father and Son and Spirit, but the Word is God. That's all built in the Old Testament, but it comes to full light in the New. So in the New, right, the entire promised plan of God, the hope of the world, the, the damage that Adam has brought has now come to pass in this great one who fulfills all the covenants, who brings all of God's promises to pass, who is the eternal son, who then in his life obeys for us, in his death pays for our sins, says it is finished, in his resurrection 
right? It brings a whole new creation, brings a new relation, our justification before God. And he then, even in his ascension, sits at the right hand of God, pours out the Spirit, will come again, and he rules and reigns over everything, right? And that's how Jesus is from beginning to end. Revelation 5, right? Revelation 5, who's the one that can open the scroll? The scroll ultimately is God's eternal plan. There's only one person who can open that scroll, right? No old prophet, no angel, no anyone. There's only one that can open the scroll, and that's the Lamb of God, the line of the tribe of Judah, even that's Old Testament language, who is equal with the one on the throne because he receives equal worship, God the Son, who's become human to die for us. And it's because of him that we have life. It's because of him that we have a new world. It's because of him we have righteousness before God, right? By faith, by grace, through faith in him, right? That's the message of the Bible, and I trust and pray that, you know, each one here, right, we gather as the church, we know that, but if one doesn't know that, this is the message of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible. This is the Christ of the Bible, not of, you know, there's all kinds of Jesuses running around, right? This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus that demands everything from you, right? God demands everything from you, the triune God, everything from you. And this is the one who promises life. He doesn't say, go work it out yourself, right? You couldn't do it. He says, I will provide. I act in grace. You don't deserve this. You receive it by the empty hands of repentance. I turn from my sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are then justified before God and all the hope of eternity is ours. Well, that's a glorious message. That's the message of the Bible from beginning to end. And that's the Christ of the Bible from the beginning to end. So obviously much more can be said, but let's rejoice in him. And as the people of God this week, take that message to our world. That's the message. I mean, that's who he is, and they're going to stand before him anyway. But we need to tell them the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that even in a small way, that we have been able to think through your glorious plan, your redemptive plan that's centered in your Son. You have so loved us that you've given us your Son, who is now our Redeemer. And we pray that we will rejoice in him, that we will know him, that we will love him, that we will make him known. We pray that you would teach us from your word, help us to understand more and more how the whole Bible is for us, for our instruction, and is to lead us to him. We ask this for his namesake and for our good and for the good of the church. Amen.